The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, let's take a visit to the Museum of Failure. Plus, Robot Spider Zombies. Not a new comic book series, but an actual experiment from mechanical engineers in Texas. And the Earth's earliest animal predator has been named after David Attenborough. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. You know how some people are visual learners and some are auditory learners? You know, sometimes I like to joke that I am a mistake learner. It doesn't matter how much I try to prepare or practice or pay attention, I usually mess things up the first several times I try them. After that, I typically get it, but making mistakes is an important part of the process for me. That is a belief shared by Dr. Samuel West, an American Icelandic clinical psychologist and founder of the Museum of Failure. The Museum of Failure is a collection of over 100 failed innovations. The collection has been exhibited in Sweden, Shanghai, Paris, Taipei, Hollywood, the Mall of America, and is currently running at South Center Mall in Calgary. They also do mini pop-ups for smaller events, and you can view most of the items in a virtual tour online. The Museum of Failure describes itself as, quote, a collection of failed products and services from around the world. The the majority of all innovation projects fail, and the museum showcases these failures to provide visitors a fascinating learning experience. Every item provides unique insight into the risky business of innovation. Innovation and progress require an acceptance of failure. The museum aims to stimulate productive discussion about failure and inspire us to take meaningful risks. End quote. And I love all of that because, yes, a lot of the collection is just a funny stroll down memory lane or a surprising WTF experience. But the ethos is that, hey, a lot of these mistakes led to huge successes down the line. The museum has been getting some extra attention this past week thanks to a viral Twitter thread from writer Chung Fan showcasing some of the more bizarre products in the collection, so I decided to take the virtual tour and go digging for more. Now, there are all the hits that you'd imagine, Betamax, HD DVDs, New Coke, Google Wave, mini discs the DeLorean, but also a host of more obscure failures, or at least ones that you may not have thought about in a while. Here are some of my favorites. Let's start with the Nike Magneto. On the market from 1995 to 1997, the idea was cool-looking sunglasses that didn't have arms. Really, the most 90s invention I could think of in hindsight. The problem was the only way for the sunglasses to stay on your face, since they didn't have arms, was by gluing magnets to your head for the sunglasses to clip onto. And that wasn't a hack, that was by design. So, yeah, no surprise these flopped. 
Another one that I would have bet good money was fake, but is actually still for sale and even got a $25,000 investment on Shark Tank is the Euro Club. It looks like a golf club, but it's actually a urinal. Now, on the one hand, the inventor clearly knew his market. Older dudes, aka a lot of the people on the golf course, have to pee a lot. On the other hand, sticking your junk into a golf club in broad daylight while surrounded by other people does not really match the dignity of a country club, even with the privacy shield, aka a small towel, that the Euro Club came with. As the Museum of Failure put it, quote, low-budget late-night infomercials reduced the status of the Euro Club to a funny gag gift for that golfer friend who already has everything, end quote. Next on the list, existing for just one year in the fledgling online commerce days of 2000 to 2001, was QCAT, C-U-E, CAT, a cat-shaped handheld scanner, so you could scan codes in, say, a magazine, and then be sent straight to the product listing online without having to type anything like a URL. Now, I love this one because you could tell that the inventor thought that it would be as ubiquitous as the mouse, hence going for the matching cat shape and name. Alas, as more people got used to typing in URLs and navigating websites, having a whole extra device just to scan codes didn't really seem necessary. Now, here's one from the 1970s, Growing Up Skipper. Skipper is Barbie's little sister, and in 1975, Mattel decided maybe it was time to age the doll character up a bit and teach young girls a thing or two about puberty in the process. When kids rotated the arm of growing up Skipper, the doll grew an inch in height and also grew breasts. If you rotated the arm back, she shrunk down to her prepubescent height and the breasts went away. Or, as the commercial from the 70s horrifically described it, quote, change her instantly from a little girl into a tall, slender teenage doll, which is something you can't do. You can have fun with Skipper as a little girl, and suddenly you can make her grow up enough to wear her glamorous teenage skirt. End quote. Yes, Mattel, little girls can have fun, but as soon as puberty hits, they're only allowed to be slender, glamorous, and wear skirts. Not shockingly, given the way it was marketed, and just the whole developing breasts thing in general, the doll was criticized for sexualizing teenage girls and stopped being sold after four years. Another contender from the 70s, AIDS. That is, A-Y-D-S. Without even telling you what this product was, you can probably guess why it eventually fizzled out based on the name and timing. It's a little worse than it sounds, though. AIDS were appetite-suppressant candies, designed to be taken instead of appetite-suppressant pills. They were pretty popular thanks to celebrity endorsements and the emergence of toxic modern body standards, but once the AIDS epidemic reared its head, AIDS candies were done for. But not before one last Hail Mary of changing their name to Diet AIDS. Shockingly, that wasn't enough to save the ship. Speaking of sexual health, here's a product that was available from 2006 to 2008 and is absolutely horrifying, the Spray-On Condom. It required insertion into an apparatus that would then apply melted latex, which took three minutes to dry before you could get back in action. Needless to say, it was a scary and impractical solution for people, so it never took off. Although it has been tried again in slightly different forms by other inventors and institutions over the years. 
Another product that seems slightly out of a nightmare is Gerber Singles. Sometime in the 70s, Gerber thought to itself, hey, we've been ruling this whole baby food business for almost half a century. Maybe we should try expanding. So they launched a series of pureed adult food in jars. The Museum of Failure shows off two empty jars labeled as Beef Burgundy and Blueberry Delight. And like the spray on condom and many other inventions in this museum, I get where they were going with this. You know, the 70s in particular were a time when adults were looking for convenience in the home. For a few decades at that point, people had been predicting that we'd one day take all of our food in pill or tablet form. I mean, heck, think of the chewing gum dinners in the 1971 Willy Wonka movie. But as Gerber Singles proved, there is a reason we still don't have full meals or entrees in pill, gum, or pureed form. It's not a lack of technology. It's because, turns out, most people actually like to enjoy their food. Now, I want to end with a product that my older brother would have gone absolutely nuts over if it had been under the Christmas tree in 1990, the Nintendo Power Glove. Officially licensed as a Nintendo accessory, but not designed or made by them, it was supposed to be a breakthrough in virtual reality technology as the first-ever mass-marketed wearable video game controller. Unfortunately, it didn't really do much of anything. It had a bit of a high barrier of entry for installation and learning how to use it, and when you did, it didn't work that well or do all that much. Inverse described it as, quote, if an Apple keyboard were stitched to an oven mitt, end quote. And despite becoming a bit of a joke over the years, you could make the argument that the Nintendo Power Glove was still a breakthrough in virtual reality because the motion control technology it employed pioneered by Thomas Zimmerman, led directly to the Nintendo Wii years later. Like so many innovations in the Museum of Failure's collection, it was something that was kind of ahead of its time. The technology wasn't quite ready yet, or the public wasn't ready yet, or the product wasn't able to be produced affordably enough yet. But the failure would either lead to subsequent iterations that eventually took off, or would inspire other burgeoning inventors to create a more successful version in the future. Ultimately, that's the point of the Museum of Failure, reminding us that we all make mistakes, even, and maybe especially, people who have had great successes. There are a ton more products that you can peruse in the virtual tour of the museum, or if you're ever able to, I highly recommend going to see the physical collection. I haven't done that yet, but I can only imagine how cool it would be to see some of these products in person. But until then, keep making mistakes. It's Frankenstein meets Frank Marshall's arachnophobia. A team at Rice University in Texas have started using the corpses of wolf spiders as conduits for robots. They call this new field necrobotics. Quoting Science Alert, Weirdly, spider legs don't have muscles for extension, but instead move their legs via hydraulic pressure. They have what's called a prosoma chamber, or cephalothorax, which contracts, sending inner body fluid into their legs, making them extend. When they die, the hydraulic system doesn't work anymore. The flexor muscles in the spider's leg go into rigor mortis. But, as the muscles only work in one direction, the spider curls up. And while most man-made robotics components are quite complex to manufacture, 
Spiders are complex already, and unfortunately for arachnophobes, are in plentiful supply. Spiders are also biodegradable, so using them as robot parts could cut the amount of waste in robotics. End quote. All very cool and I guess convenient, but why turn dead spiders into robots? The team says the point is to repurpose them as mechanical grippers for very small objects, like in electronics or for other insects, even ones that outweigh them. Quoting further from Science Alert, the team inserted a needle into the spider's persoma chamber and created a seal around the tip of the needle with a glob of superglue. Squeezing a tiny puff of air through the syringe was enough to act activate the spider's legs, achieving a full range of motion in less than one second. The team were able to make the dead spider grip onto a small ball and used that experiment to determine a peak grip force of 0.35 millinewtons, end quote. They also had the necrobotic grippers manipulate a circuit board and found that they could reliably lift more than 130% of their body weight, sometimes more. Daniel Preston from Rice's School of Engineering said of potential applications in a statement, quote, There are a lot of pick-and-place tasks we could look into. Repetitive tasks like sorting or moving objects around at these small scales, maybe even something like assembly of microelectronics, end quote. Now, the one downside thus far is that the spiders start to degrade after about 1,000 open and closed cycles, which in the lab occurred within just a couple of days. However, they experimented with coating the wolf spiders in polymers, like beeswax, which helped it function for longer. And despite my Frankenstein and zombie jokes and the overall nightmarish vision this whole experiment elicits, the team is clear that they aren't reanimating the spiders. They're just using them as natural materials. Preston said, quote, Despite looking like it might have come back to life, we are certain that it's inanimate, and we're using it, in this case, strictly as a material derived from a once-living spider. It's providing us with something really useful. End quote. So, no need to fear a robot spider zombie uprising just yet. Well, after being named the champion of the whole dang earth earlier this year, David Attenborough has just received another honor. The world's earliest known animal predator has been named after the legendary British broadcaster. Aurora Lumina Attenboroughi is the earliest known creature to have a skeleton, and is related to a group called Cnidaria that includes corals, jellyfish, and anemones. The 560-million-year-old fossil was discovered in Charnwood Forest near Leicester, where Attenborough himself used to go fossil hunting as a boy. The dating of this particular fossil means that modern animal groups like Cnidaria are actually 20 million years older than previously believed. Quoting NBC News, Frankie Dunn from the Oxford University Museum of Natural History said the specimen was very different to other fossils found in Charnwood Forest and around the world. Dunn said, unlike most other fossils from the Cambrian period, this one clearly has a skeleton with densely packed tentacles that would have waved around in the water capturing passing food, much like corals and sea anemones do today. End quote. While the Attenborough-y bit of the creature's name is after David Attenborough, the Aurora Lumina part is Latin for Dawn Lantern. Dunn told the BBC that he thinks the creature looks a bit like the Olympic torch, with its tentacles as the flames. And if you look at the artist rendering in any of the articles, you can kind of see what he's getting at. 
Quoting from the BBC, The outline of the 20cm or 8-inch tall creature was imprinted on a long, sloping slab of quarry siltstone, surrounded by other fossil forms. It's thought that all were smothered in a turbid flow of sediment and ash that ran down the underwater flank of an ancient volcano. The death scene was originally uncovered in 2007, when researchers cleaned the Charnwood rock face with high-pressure hoses. It's taken the 15 years that have passed since then to make sense of the assemblage and Aurora Lumina's position within it. End quote. The Charnwood Forest is well known for its wealth of fossils dating back to the Ediacaran period preceding the Cambrian. Attenborough shared his experiences looking for fossils in that forest, saying, quote, The rocks in which Aurora Lumina has now been discovered were then considered to be so ancient that they dated from long before life began on the planet, so I never looked for fossils there. A few years later, a boy from my old school found one and proved the experts wrong. He was rewarded by his name being given to his discovery. Now I have almost caught up with him, and I'm truly delighted. End quote. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 